Welcome to The People's Show with Big Nazar and Randeep Janda. Hey, what's up? Dan Richo, Brendan Batchelor in for the People's Show this afternoon. Hope you're enjoying this lovely day. A lot to get into. Kevin Woodley is going to join us, Don Taylor, Grant Wall, and just added to the show, Whitecaps manager Vanny Sartini on uh, the new signing that they've uh, just added to the roster. Alessandro Schopf. I have confirmation he will be doing the hit with us. Tarps off. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Would we have it any other way? <laughs> what What's the Brendan Bachelor way to se- to celebrate? Is it tarps off or just like hands in the air? Wave them like uh, you just don't care. It's, it's not tarps off. No, okay. for sure. Um, you and me both, Batch. It's all good. I was going to say, I don't think many people would want to see that, so I'm not going to uh, force it upon them. I don't know. I'd probably run around a lot with my fists yep. pumping in the air if I was in Vanny's situation, mm-hmm. winning a Canadian championship or, or some other trophy of that level. I feel like I might do the, the Homer Simpson, you know, just like on the ground and like going in a circle. Whoop, 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 whoop. You know? <laughs> I was uh, like in in minor hockey. If I scored like a big overtime winner or something, I was like a a yard sale guy, like gloves and sticks <laughs> all over the place, helmets coming off, jumping oh, wow. up and down. So uh, my most embarrassing minor hockey goal celebration, if you'll allow me to tell this story, Batch. Uh, of course. <laughs> I look back on like. You know, in the moment when you're like eight years old, you think you're the coolest kid on earth. But probably, probably was was not the the best choice. But uh, I scored like 12 seconds into a game, like right off the face off. Uh, took the puck down the wing and, and ended up scoring. Uh, and I did the the Timu Solani throw the glove in the air and shoot it with my stick celebration. Smithers, I'm beginning to think that Homer Simpson. Was not the brilliant tactician I thought he was. <laughs> uh, that that was basically the ref being like, "Don't ever do that again." <laughs> I, I've got a a more embarrassing story Ooh, along this is that good. same same line. Uh, I did that celebration, but I was not a child in minor hockey. I did it in a beer league playoff game in a particularly intense series against another team where we didn't like them, they didn't like us. I scored a big goal. And I did the Timu Solani, and they were not happy. And I somehow didn't get a penalty either, so it, it worked out pretty well. <laughs> Isn't this the problem with hockey, though? You can't celebrate a goal like you're showing somebody up. You scored a goal. You should be happy. I don't know. All right, we're not having that discussion today. Someone should do the Ronaldo <laughs> on skates, though. I would not. Sue. No. Sue, yeah. <laughs> De- definitely not me. I'd be more Luca Toni, you know, like, hey, giving the old uh, – Wave to the crowd a la Hulk Hogan. Uh, all right. So we're going to get into a lot of stuff. Fanny Sartini, uh, big signing for the Whitecaps. He's going to join us after 4 o'clock. Um, I will say this. 
The Vancouver Canucks, always interesting what's happening in the summer. You get a lot of uh, summer reading that comes through, Batch. And, uh, you know, one thing that was interesting to me was the athletic ranking, you know, contract efficiency around the league today. Dom Lushizhin, uh doing his annual contract efficiency piece. And the Florida Panthers are number one by his model and... It's it's all just like a numbers based thing, not not uh, opinion based. But um, he had the Canucks at number fourteen, and why I think that's interesting is because this is a team batch and a city that has constantly berated the amount of anchor contracts that they've got on the books, and. It's been a constant source of content for us. It's been a constant source of debate about the Vancouver Canucks and how this roster is built. So why why am I surprised that they are 14th? That is right in the middle of the league, slightly above the midway point of the NHL. The Vancouver Canucks, 14th in contract efficiency, mostly down to their forward group because uh, OEL and Myers are the two contracts that are the biggest anchors by the model. Are you surprised that the Canucks rank so high on this list? I am, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I'm also surprised that Florida tops the list because you look at the Bobrovsky tra- or, uh, contract and you yeah, would goalies, think that... Goalies were not included on, on the list. Oh, okay. So yeah. then that that's obviously a, a big factor there. Uh, although, you know, if goalies were included, I wonder if the Canucks would be even higher on that right. list with the contract that they have Thatcher Demko under. So, yeah, I mean, I think their inefficient money is magnified in this market because they haven't been a successful team recently. Like if you're the Florida Panthers and you have a contract like Bobrovsky, it doesn't matter because you're one of the best teams in the NHL, right? If you have a little bit of inefficient money, if you're the Tampa Bay Lightning, but you've gone to three straight Stanley Cup finals, then it doesn't really matter. But when you're a team that is trying to get into the playoffs, that has a good young core, that wants to get those guys playoff experience in a city where, you know, there hasn't been a playoff game hosted in this city. Of course, we had uh, the bubble playoffs in quite a long time, right? You know, we're we're coming up on, what, eight years since there was a, a playoff game at Rogers Arena? So, you know, in some ways I'm surprised that they're that high on the list because it's something we talk about so much. But in terms of, you know, looking at teams around the league that have bad contracts, there are lots of teams that have bad contracts. It's just a lot of them are better on the ice than the Canucks. So the bad contracts aren't a talking point. It's uh, some of the the um, inefficient money takes. I mean, it's really come off the books, right? Uh, Louis Erickson gone. Jay Beagle, Antoine Roussel gone. So, yes, while... Um, you know, those contracts were really weighting the Canucks down for a while. And th- those contracts have moved on. Now, they added Oliver ekman Larson instead of just letting those contracts pass through, which I'm sure many people are going to text in and say, yeah, but hey, they, they did this instead of just like letting that come off the books and being able to have cap flexibility and do whatever they want. Uh, I get that part of it. But this really comes down to the forward group and and any success you try to concoct in your mind around this Canucks team batch comes down to the forward group and just how good they can be 
this year. They add Ilya Mikheyev. They add Andre Kuzmenko. Elias Pettersson likely to be more consistent next year now that you know he's he's not going to have the big injury to start the year off, no contract holdout situation. There's no worries there. Garland, for all the debate we had about Garland, you know, he was their most consistent and most efficient scorer at five on five last year. This is a really interesting forward group that the Canucks have here. And assuming that it will remain this way going into the year, how do you feel about this Canucks forward group and how do you think it should line up? Yeah, you know, and also looking at contract efficiency here, Reach, you know, no one on the Canucks makes $8 million, no. which in today's NHL, you know, you see some of the the contracts, you know, eclipsing the $10 million mark. Now, if they extend JT Miller, what is that number? It's it's almost certainly going to come in north of $8 million. We'll have to wait and see how that saga plays out. But, you know, looking at that, and saying, okay, there's their their internal cap anyway is set below eight million dollars per player. That is something that's pretty efficient. As far as their forward group goes, it's the biggest reason for optimism going yeah. into this season. Because you know, unless something drastically changes, they're returning the same group of defensemen that they had last year you know, essentially in terms of who's going to play in their top six minus Brad Hunt, who who played a lot of games last year. Uh, you know, maybe Jack Rathbone gets into the lineup more in place of Hunt leaving. But, you know, it's it's essentially the same defense. You know, you've got Thatcher Demko coming back. Yes, it's a different backup goaltender, and we'll see, uh, you know, what happens with Spencer Martin and whether he can provide more wins and more solid starts than Yarrow Halak did, or maybe Colin Delia has a chance to compete uh, for some starts too. So that all remains to be seen. But this forward group, and we talked about it last year, and it's the same narrative going into this season. The question's going to be, can they outscore their defensive problems? Now, mm-hmm. they were massively improved defensively last year. A large part of that uh, was due to the great play of Thatcher Demko, so it'll be interesting to see if he can replicate the performance from last year and stay healthy because that's something the Canucks are going to need, assuming they don't make any drastic changes between now uh, and the start of the season. But when it comes to how this forward group should shake out, you know, I'm sure we could have an endless debate about who should be on whose line and, and where things should fit in. The thing that I'm expecting at least to start the year that I think you can use as a framework in trying to predict what the Canucks lines are going to look like is I expect Bruce Boudreaux will want to play JT Miller, Elias Pettersson and Bo Horvat at center ice. So I'm not expecting uh, return of the lotto line. You know, I think we're probably looking at a 1A, 1B, maybe even 1C kind of line mix up in terms of trying to spread out some of that scoring and provide some of that depth. Because I've said this before and I'll say it again. One of the first things I talked to Bruce Boudreaux about when he came in as the Canucks head coach was his thoughts on the roster. And he immediately said, that the one, two, three punch that they have down the middle, he thinks is one of the best center ice groups, one through three in the league. And 
I can't imagine that he'd want to move away from that if he thinks he can get depth production by playing Miller, Pedersen, and Horvat on different lines. It's uh, it's something they tried to do so much last year, but it just didn't work. They didn't have enough winger depth to allow it to work, especially once some of the injuries started to come down. And you, you, you didn't have – like Pedersen was a bit of, on an island. Right, Hoaglander wasn't going, and he wasn't scoring. And as much as they could carry play to a decent level, you weren't getting enough out of Patterson. He didn't have the finisher on his line that he needed. He wasn't getting the service that he needed. And once they switched that up and they moved Patterson to the wing, he really started to find his game and really finish strong offensively. But now that you've added Kuzmenko and Mikheyev, you should have, in theory, without injuries a lineup that is able to serve all three of those players down the middle. And this is a Canucks team that would have the three lines, the top nine we've been talking about for so long that can actually score. Yeah, the fourth line, what's it going to be? You know, Curtis Lazard, Dakota Joshua, whatever. Your fourth line is going to be a checking line. That's fine an energy line, but everything else should be able to score and should be able to have some success matching up against other teams that may not be as deep. I I think that's probably the most exciting thing about this roster, if it remains as currently constructed, is what that top nine could look like and what they could do to opponents, especially if Pedersen is hot coming out of the gate. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as I... Uh, as I tried to go through the exercise of putting my lines together uh, in advance of knowing, okay, we so were who who would you today? Who would you have with Miller? Because for me, I really liked Pearson, Miller, and Besser together last season. Oh, interesting. So that's not what I have. I okay. I sort of looked at it from the perspective of having duos on each line, so guys okay. that you're going to keep together. So you know, I think Pedersen and Besser are probably a duo you want to keep together. I was thinking Pod Colson and Miller, actually, because I think they had some good chemistry and had some good stretches playing together. And then, you know, Horvat's consistently been paired with Pearson. Would he end up on a line with Pearson? Or maybe you do pair Mikheyev with Horvat to add some speed and some checking ability Mm -hmm. to play with the captain. So those are kind of the things I'm looking at. So the lines I've got drawn out here are... Pod Colson, Miller, and Garland, Kuzmenko, Pedersen, and Besser, Pearson, Horvat, Mikheyev, and then the fourth line, uh, Dickinson and or Joshua, Lazar, Hoaglander. Right. That's kind of how I'm building out the lineup right now. Uh, I have no issues with that. I I, I really like the idea of Mikheyev and and Horvat together, mainly because... You know, we, we can debate Horvat and just how strong he is defensively and if he should be taking toughs on most nights. But when you have Mikheyev with him, you know, maybe that, that helps because Mikheyev is a legitimately good defensive winger and can help in taking matchups against the other team's top lines for Bo Horvat. He hasn't really had that kind of a player at any point in his career when he's been handling those tough situations. 
Miller with Pod Colson, it worked. I think Miller kind of works with with almost anybody. You know, yeah. he's he's going to be the guy that's that's carrying the puck, assuming uh, he's he's playing center. And uh, the the tricky one is is Pedersen because. It's been mixed, you know. Last year, Pedersen and Besser, like their their chemistry, evaporated. Batch, like I, I don't know where it went, but it was it was just gone. So, can they find it again? Probably, but it was something that I, I completely understood why the team and why coach went away from it last year because it just wasn't working. Those two together. No, it wasn't. And you know, Pedersen had the the dreadful start to the season. Besser obviously had a, a difficult year overall. And uh, you know, with the the situation with his father, you don't necessarily blame him. Um, so that's kind of why I want, mm-hmm. uh, or I expect them to maybe try it at least going into the season. Is these are both guys that could have resurgent years, and especially if you put them together with the chemistry that they've shown in the past. Although. You know, that hasn't really materialized under Boudreaux. There is still an opportunity there. And I also like sticking the young kid or the new kid, Kuzmenko, Kuzmenko with them, because I think that maybe gives them a, a bit of a spark as well and allows him to get integrated with the core group of the team, both on and off the ice. So, you know, again, if you're looking at the the lines that, that I've put together, the Pod Colson, Miller, Garland line, that's going to be an offensive line. Same goes for Pedersen, Besser, Kuzmenko. And then what you were talking about with Mikheyev and Horvat, I like. And Pearson's a guy that he's not fast like Mikheyev, but he can play that shutdown role. So then you've got uh, a Horvat, Pearson, Mikheyev line potentially playing all your matchups. And that means that one of those other two offensive lines is going to be freed up to have some key matchups and some really good opportunities to produce. And if you're worried about Patterson after the start to last year, if you're worried about Besser and how he's going to come into the season, maybe that's where you can gain some confidence for that line, especially with Kuzmenko there as an NHL rookie on that line too, is if that's the line that you look to get some of those really good matchups by playing Horvat straight up against the top lines of other teams. It's uh, it is a fascinating group. I almost forget about Kuzmenko sometimes. I have no idea what to expect from him. It, it, you know, he's not going to be Panarin. He's not going to be Kaprizov. Um, but can he be an Evgeny Dadanov type? You know, can he in in just watching some of the tape of him? He does play well as a playmaker. The vision should be there and having him with Pedersen and Besser guys who can finish might be the way to go uh, for Andre Kuzmenko. So I like that part of it. Now I, I did throw it out on Twitter. What or who I should say, uh, who would be the breakout player on this Canucks forward group? And you know, breakout player doesn't have to be Vasily Podkolzin because he's young and we haven't seen it yet, although uh, I expected that answer to come in quite a bit. But I think Elias Pettersson is the player I would say is on the brink of a breakout season. If he is able to carry the momentum of his second half batch into a full 82-game season for next year, we're talking about a player that could finally eclipse, you know, point of game status over 82 games, potentially into 90 points through the middle of the ice. And I wonder what the goal scoring ceiling could be. It can obviously be high with him as the trigger man on the power play, but 
we've talked about it so much earlier in his career. The shine wore off for about a season or a season and a half batch, but it feels like things are aligning for Pedersen to really have that breakout season we've been waiting for. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you talk about building off the momentum of, of the later part of the season or the second half of the season. That is the most remarkable part of last season for Elias Pedersen is he had the tough start to the year that he did, you know, didn't find his game and find his groove until well into the midst of the season. And yet he was two points shy from tying his career high. And in terms of points per game, if I'm not mistaken, it was his second best season in the league. Mm-hmm. He had only done better in terms of points per game uh, in the, the first season. Uh, or actually, sorry, he did set a career high in points. I'm, I'm misreading the stats page I'm looking yeah. at here. 68 points in 80 games at the end of the year. Uh, he had, yeah, his, his career high for points per game was, was previously his first year in the league. So, you know, for him to finish that way, to finish as a 30 goal scorer, first of all, and to finish with more points than he's ever put up in a season, you know, the caveat also being that he played more games than he's ever played in a season. That is incredibly impressive when you think about how futile the start to the year was for him. So think about that. If he can have a bad first half of the season and still basically be a 70 point guy, what can happen if he can start well, find consistency, stay healthy, and carry it through an entire 82-game season. You're right, the sky's the limit. He could be a 90-point player. Heck, he could be a 100-point player this year. It wouldn't surprise me at all because after working through what he did in the start of the season last year with the injury and and finding his confidence again and, you know, obviously the, the holdout in training camp, uh, you know, limited his ability to have a strong start to the season as well. All of those things are behind him now. I would imagine he's had a really good summer of training. If he can come in and hit the ground running at the start of the year, then look out. It could be an unbelievable season for Elias Pettersson. And the Canucks are going to need that too, because as we talked about, the big question again is going to be, can they outscore some of the weaker areas of their game, particularly on the blue line? And, you know, if you, in a, in a world where, you have JT Miller have another great season and get at or near 100 points, and you have Elias Pettersson have a great season and get at or near 100 points, then suddenly the conversation around this team is going to completely change. So Elias Pettersson last year, points per 60, uh, which is basically your points on a, on a per-minute basis on the ice, mm-hmm. um, was at 1.6. His rookie year, he was a full point better. So at five on five, that could be the difference. Uh, if he gets back to that level batch, that could be the difference between him being, you know, 68 points in 80 games versus over a point per game over the course of a season, especially now that he is playing more minutes at this stage of his career. And I think that's a, a fascinating storyline to watch. This is a player after his sophomore year was being talked about as a top 20 center in the NHL. Has obviously fallen off, hasn't been the best through the North Division year or last season, but still has the ability to get back into the discussion for a top 20 centerman in the league and potentially 
even more if he can find that consistency. Uh, let us know what you think on the Dunbar Lumber text line, 650-650. Uh, who could be that breakout player for the Vancouver Canucks this year? Got a ton of tweets coming in. We'll go through some of those during the course of the program. Hockey Vancouver saying Petey and Besser wanted to give a shout to Besser. And also, we'll give a thought on Vasily Podkolzin as the show goes on. What could a sophomore season look like for him if it is to be a breakout for Vasily Podkolzin? I don't necessarily know if points are ever going to be a big thing for Pods, but there is still room to grow from his offensive production. Stan Richo and Brendan Batchelor coming up. Kevin Woodley is going to join us. Our goalie guru, his take on the Canucks, the Abbotsford Canucks new goalie coach, Marco Terenius. That and more coming up next on The People's Show. Yeah, it's the People's Show, Dan Richo and Brendan Batchelor. A lot of love coming in for Vasily Podkolzin as the player who could break out this year for the Vancouver Canucks batch. Yeah, and you can understand why, especially when you see or when you saw how much his game grew from the start of the year to the end of the year and how... You know, he was he was relatively quiet early in the year, didn't do a whole lot, didn't get a ton of ice time, and finishes the year with 14 goals and, and a good stretch run and, and moved up the lineup and had more opportunity as the season went on. You know, you look at the last, uh, what do we got here, like the last 12 games of the year, he had three multi-point games in that stretch. Um, so, you know, the, the sky is the limit for Vasily Podkolzin. And especially with the added depth to the forward group, there will be a, a significant role carved out for him on this roster. And he's going to have the opportunity to play with good players and to succeed. And, you know, I, I absolutely understand why people think he could really have a breakout year. It's um, it's really interesting to look at his season and think about what else is there for, for Vasily Podkolzin. One thing... I wonder about is, you know, his game will, I don't know if he'll ever be the biggest point getter necessarily, but, you know, the shot was so impressive last year that if he's able to get himself into more shooting opportunities, uh, we could really see uh, a, a consistent 20 goal scorer for the Vancouver Canucks for, for many, many years. Uh, let's bring in our next guest. It is uh, Kevin Woodley, our goalie guru, joins us every Wednesday here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, what's going on, Woodley? Not much, although I'm not sure the goalie guru should be allowed to join in the midst of a talk about breakout forwards because <laughs> that just makes me cringe. Yeah, that, uh, that's why we take a hard left turn, and uh, we, we try to figure out what we need to, to know about the Canucks goalie situation, and that is it's changing a little bit. Abbotsford uh, Canucks have hired a new goalie coach after Curtis Sanford uh, took the job in Toronto with the Maple Leafs. Marco Terenius, uh, what should we know? He's Finnish. He worked <laughs> in Russia. Yep, okay. And 
not to go too uh, too 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 uh, too self congratulatory and pat myself on the back, but one of the names we had right away on this show yep. uh, after the news broke that Curtis Sanford. Uh, I was taking that job in Toronto, a guy that uh, was at the top of my list for this job, and, and he ends up getting it. Um, listen, this is this is an opportunity for the Canucks to hire a guy that, you know, frankly, in other years wouldn't be available. Um, you know, I've talked before about how, especially on teams like like Marco worked for in the KHL, SKA, you know, uh, those high end, um, well financed teams. You know, frankly, pay their goalie coaches more than a lot of NHL teams do. And so the opportunity to get a guy who's worked professionally uh, in one of the top leagues for so long, it probably wouldn't be there if not for what's going on in Ukraine right now. Um, but it is. The Canucks take full advantage. Um, you know, and this is a guy who has relationships with Ian Clark through uh, Ian's work in Russia. Um, that's one of the things that, that the Canucks got when they brought Ian Clark back was a guy with deep ties uh, overseas, both through his work uh, in Sweden, when Marcus Naslin hired him to work with Moto, uh, and his work in Russia, starting with uh, his time when he'd go over there to visit Sergei Bobrovsky, and he really sort of planted some roots over there, uh, expanded his network, and got to know a lot of the key players uh, in Russia, and that includes a lot of Finnish goalie coaches like Marco. So um, in addition to familiarity, there's a belief in terms of common-held philosophies, um, you know, what, 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 a good, what good goaltending looks like, what the foundation uh, what the foundational principles of that look like that are shared between a guy for, like Marco Terranius and, and Ian Clark. And so, you know, when we had uh, Marco on the podcast, geez, I want to say that's, you know, a couple months ago before any of this, before this was even a possibility, frankly, um, we had him on to talk about his work with Igor Shishterkin. Um, but it was him that brought up sort of his time with Ian Clark and some of those shared philosophies. So this is a really good fit. Um, you know, I, and like I said, uh, an opportunity for Vancouver that I'm not sure would be there in a normal year, not because Marco isn't qualified, but because it isn't you know usually a, a position or a level that I think would interest guys who are normally in the KHL. So um, you know, it's, we'll see what happens. There's an adjustment process. Uh, this is we talk a lot about European goalies coming over to North America and getting used to the smaller ice. Um, there will be some tactical adjustments that he'll have to get used to sort of working through with his goaltenders as well. The play over here is right on top of you. Um, you know, you players shoot from anywhere. Everything's a scoring chance, whereas overseas on the bigger ice and the pass, 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 maybe dust it off and pass one more time to the open guy uh, style of the KHL, um, that might require, like I said, tactical adjustments. But I think from a technical foundation standpoint, um, you know, Marco, there, there's similarities there. And um, when you talk about two of the top leagues in the world or top countries in the world when it comes to developing goaltending, uh, you look at Finland, where Marco's actually played a role um, during the pandemic in sort of updating and redeveloping Finland's national goaltending uh, program, which is one that, uh, oh, apologies there, uh, which is one that, you know, they're one of the first countries in the world to sort of come up with a national goaltending curriculum. And Marco was one of the ones who was involved in sort of updating that just a couple of years ago. Then the other country is Russia, right? Like, look at all the Russian goaltenders coming over. And so he has roots there, he has ties there, uh, and he's played a big role in sort of the development uh, of goaltenders from both countries. So, like I said, this is, this is a, a name that I'm sure, like I said, it was at the top of my list right away. It's a name that your average fan probably has never heard before. 
Um, but don't be fooled. This is a name that has, uh, that has some value in the goaltending world, and it's a good get for the Canucks. We've heard a lot and seen a lot uh, about the Finnish goaltending pipeline and, and the number of great goaltenders that have come out of that country. What about goaltending coaches, though? You know, obviously Marco joins the Canucks organization now. Are we seeing more goalie coaches coming out of Finland and getting opportunities either in North America, in the NHL, or in other major leagues? Well, we're, we, we saw the first one, and I think this is, you know, honestly – to be honest, it'll be tempting even for me to point to it as a trend because it's an easy storyline, but I think it might be a coincidence and somewhat circumstantial. Um, but this move comes right after we just saw our first European, first Finnish goalie coach win a Stanley Cup in UC Parkilla, who uh, also had ties to Ian, interestingly enough. Um, so I think, you know, we, we do see the NHL as a copycat league. And so it will be tempting to say, oh, look, and a Finnish goalie coach won the Stanley Cup, and now the Canucks have hired one. And, you know, I, I can confirm, I don't want to say the team because um, they haven't made it official yet, and I don't want to get anyone in trouble. But, I, I, you know, there is going to be another Finnish goalie coach announced in a similar position in the American Hockey League. And so now maybe it is the start of a trend. Um, you know, like I said, circumstantial because it's not something that would otherwise happen just because of the leagues and what's going on in the KHL. Um, but maybe more teams willing to take a chance. Listen, Marco Terranius wasn't just high on the Canucks list. My understanding is he was shortlisted. I'm not sure if he was down to final three, but he was shortlisted for at least one of the other NHL jobs, goalie coaching jobs that opened this summer. And it basically came, came down to him and another guy who had more experience in North America. And this is a risk-averse. NHL has always been a risk-averse league. And so if there is that much more certainty about a guy just because he works here compared to the other guy, you know which way they're going to go nine times out of ten in the National Hockey League. So um, yeah, I, I do think more teams are at least considering that when you see one Finnish goalie coach have success. And frankly, it's been a long time coming. And there are goalie coaches from other countries that are you know, are probably ready to make the move over here. Maciej Schwo, who just won a a uh, Swedish championship um, with Faryastad uh, in the SHL is another name that I think was on this short list for Vancouver as well. And I just, I just think it's, you know, sometimes it's that risk averse nature of the national hockey league. Nobody wants to take a chance, but when you see coaches from other countries having success and continuously producing uh, high-level goaltenders, and you've seen it out there on Twitter, and I've listed it before. There are a lot of NHL goalies that Mark was worked with over the years. Um, that's not a coincidence. Like, like the game may be different here, and there may be tactical adjustments to be made, um, but the foundation that they put in place with these goalies, in terms of the skill uh, for Finnish goalie coaches, a lot of emphasis on hand work and, and making sure the hands stay active. Like those things all translate to success over here. So why wouldn't their work as coaches as well? So I hope it is the start of a start of a trend, whether, you know, even if some of it is a little coincidental this year and circumstantial in terms of the opening being here in Vancouver and the KHL and all those other things. Um, but, but hopefully we do see more, you know, starting in the AHL uh, and hopefully following in Parkilla's footsteps right up to the NHL. Has has Russia taken over as as like the gold standard of goalie development? You know, we see Shesterkin and Sorokin and others right now kind of dominating the league. Yeah, Vasilevsky, Sorokin, Shesterkin. Yeah. Like you could you could literally see those three guys be your three best in trophy finalists this year. Like yeah. I would not be shocked by that at all. Um, see that there's the interesting question. They are unquestionably batch. 
and, and Dan, the, they have taken over as the number one place to sort of find goaltenders. Now, in terms of development, there's a little bit of a question mark there, and that sort of surrounds, in some ways, over-coaching. Um, part of what has made Russia so attractive over the past couple of years is, you know, and, and Ian Clark used this phrase in a story that ran at NHL.com with me the other day on Ty Young, um, that concept of a wild horse, uh, that these are goalies who haven't been sort of overcoached or over-institutionalized in terms of how they play goal. There's a lot of instinct, creativity, uh, a lot of maybe not reliance on athleticism, but certainly it, it's allowed to come to the forefront. Um, they haven't been institutionalized by overcoaching at too young an age. And so that's why I'm a little hesitant to say that it's the premier development league, because I think some of the success we've seen uh, with Russian goaltenders, and in some cases comes from, you know, finding those raw skills and then bringing them over here and then adding those elements. So, you know, for example, with Andre Vasilevsky, like a lot of the development has occurred after he came to North America. So um, still certainly one of the top places to find great goaltending. Uh, I actually, I'm curious to see whether that changes as we see more and more and more goalie coaching have an influence over there. Do you lose some of that raw, innate elements that have become separators for the current generation in the, N in the NHL? Does the next NHL, and Anton Hudobin sort of posed this to me just a couple of years ago because he would go back and coach, and he's like, everybody wants to play like Bob, but you're not all Bob. So does the next generation of Russian goaltenders lose some of that individuality and some of that unique skill because they're all trying to move or play like some of these guys who are now making that transition into the upper ends, uh, upper echelon of the National Hockey League? Kevin Woodley of NHL.com and In Goal Magazine with us here on the People's Show on Sportsnet 650. Wanted to ask you about uh, the situation with Mikey DiPietro. Obviously, it looks like things between him and the Canucks are, are coming to an end here. What do you know on that file? Is there anything new to report on the DiPietro situation? Yeah, no, obviously, we saw the comments from his agent. Um, don't know how much that helped, uh, but here's the thing, like, giving him permission to look for a trade, my hunch is they're not going to give him away. Um, you know, talking to somebody from another organization where they, they did have interest and I think they were willing to make a trade, but they were basically just throwing back another goaltender who, you know, in my mind, and I, and I think honestly in the Canucks mind probably isn't as good. Um, you know, they're not just like at right now, as much as Mikey DiPietro is not where he wants to be, in terms of their depth chart and the possibility of even the ECHL. But, hey, like, let's not forget, Spencer Martin came in number five on the depth chart last year, and he's the backup this year. So things can change in a hurry. I just don't know in an era where we've seen teams go four and even five deep because of injuries and, and, and also because of COVID. And so maybe we go back to a more normal years where teams are just using three with so many teams needing to go so far down their depth chart in the past couple of years. I don't know that they're going to just give them away. I think the agent will find teams willing to take them, but I don't think they're just going to walk away from it for nothing and then leave themselves without a fifth goalie on their depth chart. Um, and that becomes a bit of a conundrum uh, for Mike and his representatives in terms of finding a spot. Cause I think they're, 
you know, it's not a deep list, frankly, but I think there are some teams that would have some interest or would have had, uh, had interest, you know, maybe around the draft before free agency started and they looked, you know, to, to sort of round out their depth charts. Um, but it's, it's one thing to have him falling down your depth chart. It's another thing, like it's a whole other thing to just give him away. And I'm not sure they're at that point because they still, they may not see him higher than other guys on the chart right now, but they still believe, I think there's enough people that still believe there's a goalie there. And that, you know, if this guy, if Mikey were to come in and play like he did just a couple of years ago as a first year pro, um, that that's worth more to them than getting, you know, something in return that really doesn't amount to much at all. So uh, you mentioned earlier that you wrote about Ty Young. Um, what was your takeaway of uh, the Canucks draft choice at, de- at development camp? Well, I mean, a lot of the stories that you heard out of the draft um, that are fun uh, made their way into that piece. The fact that he grew up in Alberta, um, but a Canucks fan because of trips to his his grandparents in the summer. And so how cool it was to be on the ice with, like, he, you know, he kind of sheepishly admitted that we still got the Daniel Sedin and the Luongo jersey at home. And it was tempting, although he kept it all business at this camp, it was tempting to, if he'd had that Daniel Sedin jersey with him, it would have been tempting to get an autograph scribbled on it. So there's, I always love sort of that freshness with these prospects. Uh, but the other part that was really interesting, and, and I mentioned like the one quote that I used from Ian about the wild horse comment, like um, as much as, you know, I, I think Ty's words were, you know, in gave him a real good ego boost when he told him what I believe to be true heading into the draft, that they really did have Ty Young number one on their on their list of goaltenders, um, that they weren't blowing smoke when they said that. And so that was flattering for him to hear. But as soon as they stepped on the ice, he realized it's because there's a lot of parts that need to be refined. And so the work starts now. And I think that's part of why they like him. Um, he dug right into it. And there were some sequences, I think, even in the – uh, scrimmage game that ended the development camp where I watched him um, sort of make movement patterns uh, on rushes down the wall into the corner and pop passes into the middle. I watched the way he sort of moved his feet and tracked down into the dead angles, popped into reverse, and then shifted into the middle to make you know, a pretty tough save look easy. And what made it all the more remarkable to me is that that exact movement pattern, the way he executed it, would have been completely new to him just a few days earlier. I guess they ran a two-day goalie camp before the the rest of the dev camp started, where it was just goalies out there, uh, out at UBC. So he would have had four or five days working on it. But that's not easy. Like, to take something, a skill, or in that case, connecting a series of skills that maybe you had done differently before, and now you're doing them a new way, and you're able to execute them in live game fire, game action, full speed. Um, that's not easy. That was that was telling to me. And so that's a combination of work ethic and coachability. And when you add the skills that sort of lead to that wild horse comment, the fact that they're like he's got technical tools. It's not like he's a you know he's not he's not you know he's not, he's not totally. He's not like a kid out there. Like it's not like he doesn't know how to execute certain things. But the way they mm-hmm. do it here is totally different and to be able to integrate that into his game so quick like like that's really promising so as much as you know it's kind of funny because you you get told you come in here you're 18 years old you get drafted by the team you cheered for there's all these things going on in your life and hey we had you number one but now the work starts because the the reason we had you number one is there's a lot of elements your game we like 
and there's a lot of elements that need refined. And I think the fact he embraced that rather than bristling at it or approaching it like, hey, this, you know, why'd you pick me um, when you want to change me? And that's something we've heard from other higher ranked goalies, right? We, I heard that from Jacob Markstrom after they traded for him. Well, why'd you trade for me? And then you want to change me. Um, you know, the fact he embraced it the way he did is really encouraging. Finally, Kev, before we let you go, we saw a tweet from an Oilers fan, as I understand it, go viral, claiming that Jack Campbell is the best goalie in the Pacific Division, and it isn't close. And uh, it's gone viral because people are refuting this claim repeatedly, it seems like. What are your thoughts on where Jack Campbell sits in in terms of the goalie hierarchy in the Pacific Division? Yeah, I wouldn't be at the top of the list, that's for sure. I saw that tweet. I saw the reaction to it. Um, I was entertained by much of it. Uh, I, I want to be careful here not to rip it too bad. Um, but I think that <laughs> when, when, when Batch told me, or sorry, when uh, Reach told me we were going to talk about this today, uh, I believe the word I used in my response was delusional. Yeah. Um, and the thing you got to be careful about is you don't want to take too much away from Jack Campbell, right? Because I really like him as a goalie. I like where he's come. I like how his game has evolved. I like how his mindset has evolved. Like he's a great story to get to where he is. And he's had a lot of success as much as, you know, it hasn't necessarily translated to the playoff success in Toronto. I actually don't think the playoffs were, you know, usually his fault. Um, but when I look at the adjusted numbers and really that's how you compare goalies because playing behind different teams in distant, different systems. And, and in this case, in different conferences, um, it really is an apple and oranges comparison. If you're looking at raw save percentage, then you're not looking at the right stuff. As much as we think of save percentage as the best metric, uh, it still doesn't account for the quality. And when you grade it out based on that, um, you know, he's definitely not at the top. As a matter of fact, league-wide, each of his last two seasons, he finished in the high 30s. So, you know, as I said, when they signed him, there's some risk there for Edmonton. It was a pretty goalie-friendly environment in Toronto. Um and hey, like pressure wise and handling that market, like not every goalie can. Peter Mrazek like fell apart in that market and under that pressure. So at least you know that Jack can handle a Canadian market and that matters. Um, but when it comes to actual performance weighted against shot quality, uh, closer to 30 in the league rather than number one in the Pacific Division. And when you're talking about a Pacific Division that has Thatcher Demko, who's in the top five in adjusted save percentage, and a Jacob Markstrom, who's been in the top 10 in adjusted say percentage two of the last three years uh that's a that's you know frankly a pretty hard argument to win um if you were to really get into it you could probably based on numbers alone have guys like james reimer in the same conversation as being similar to jack campbell with the san jose sharks um john gibson stumbled of late but i think people would make that argument and i wouldn't be surprised if cal peterson can bounce back from a down last year um two years ago he had better adjusted numbers than Jack Campbell. So I actually don't mind the fit and think we'll see better things from Jack in Edmonton. Um, but I do worry a little bit about expectations. And, and if that's the level of expectation uh, that that tweet indicates people have in Edmonton, uh, I'm a little, little bit worried. It might be too high. Yeah. It's uh when, when when Jacob Markstrom is is the other goalie in Alberta, he, you know, Jack Campbell's not even the best goalie in Alberta. So uh, we we need to maybe uh, calm down a little bit. But hey, it's a, it's a good list in the Pacific Division. Woodley, we always appreciate the time, man. Thank you. My pleasure. It's August too. We need tweets like that to spark conversation. Exactly. So, exactly. It's, it's it's my secret burner account just to get me one more. <laughs> <second of season. laughs> Thanks, Woodley.
All the best, guys. Uh, there he is, the best. Uh, Kevin Woodley, goalie guru, In Goal Magazine, and NHL.com joining us uh, here on the People's Show. I, I mean, I, I, I just, it's funny that it goes viral because it is, it is so clearly a homer take batch. Like, Jack Campbell is the best goalie in the Pacific Division. It's not even close. Signed at Oilers fan here. 66, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like that. But it's an interesting and, – and you know what? Maybe it's just a, a lone uh, person throwing this take out there on Twitter. But it is interesting to see what I would assume is the level of confidence in the Oiler fan base – Mm-hmm. Now that they have a goaltender that's not Mike Smith, but that also puts a ton of pressure on Jack Campbell going into the year. And, you know, this Pacific division to me, I thought it was going to be cut and dry last year. And it certainly wasn't with, you know, Vegas stumbling as, as much as they did in LA surging up the standings and, and, you know, making a good account of themselves in the playoffs. So uh, as much as Oilers fans are, are riding high on a pretty good playoff run and being the last team standing in the Pacific Division last year, I don't think it's as obvious uh, as, as saying that because they have McDavid and Dreisaitl and now they've got a goaltender, they're automatically going to be there again. There's there's some other teams that will have something to say about that. The Flames are, are going to be in that conversation still, especially after getting Huberdeau. Uh, you know, the Kings could take another step. Vegas has to be better, you know, next year than they were last year. So, um, you know, coming off a good playoff run in the off season, I'm sure as a fan in Edmonton, you're flying high right now. But I wonder if that balloon will get burst once the season starts and and we really see how this Pacific Division might shake out. Overrated, underrated is coming to the People's Show, and it's happening next on Sportsnet 650.